On last month's episode of Lifespan, we talked to three women, Lauren, Stacy, and Cora, who were all pregnant for the first time. Lauren is 36 years old, and obstetricians defined her pregnancy as geriatric. That's the term medicine uses for pregnant women over 35. Stacy, you might remember, had a hard time getting pregnant. And although Cora was only 27 and became pregnant easily, some of the routine tests she was subjected to led to a lot of worry. Each of their stories provided us with insight into prenatal care in the United States. On this episode of Lifespan, Lauren, Stacy, and Cora are back to talk about their baby's births. And you'll find that their experiences of pregnancy set the agenda for their births. We'll start with Lauren's birth story. She now has a six-month-old daughter, Ellie. When I talked to Lauren while she was pregnant, I asked her about her vision for the birth. She told me she had none. As much as I tried to plan for everything, as much as I tried to read about everything, I have been very loosey-goosey about any type of birth plan or what I want going on in there because I think, to me, it's been so medical up until now that I envision that being very medical too. I am not somebody that wants to have a natural childbirth. I want to very much take the drugs. <laughs> I want to very much be tied up to all the machines. I, I, I want that reassurance and I, I want to be involved in that hospital environment because I think that's gonna be the safest. That's what Lauren told us more than nine months ago. Now her daughter, Ellie, is eight months old. She's going through um, like all these developmental milestones. So she's so cranky and then she's happy and then she's sleeping, then she's not sleeping. Lauren begins the story of Ellie's birth by describing how she felt just before leaving her house for the hospital. She turned to her husband and told him she felt completely unprepared. I looked at him and I was like, I'm really scared. I was like scared to have a baby. I was scared of the birth process. I was scared about the pain. I was like, I don't know if I want to go. I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to go. She wasn't in labor yet. She was headed to the hospital to have her labor induced. I was induced at 38 weeks because I had high blood pressure, and I've had high blood pressure for years and years and have been managing it through medicine, but they thought that that would be safer to induce at 38 weeks. I was induced on a Monday, and I went in with my husband at around 8 o'clock at night, and we just showed up with our stuff, and then they started the process of induction. Doctors had given Lauren her induction date early in her pregnancy. Even though her blood pressure was well-controlled during the pregnancy, doctors never reevaluated the date. They just stuck to the date, and they never checked to see if I was dilated at all before that. We just stuck to the date, and I showed up. They started with the cervix ripening pill, and I believe it was a certain amount of dosage every, I want to say, four hours, but it could have been different. And they hooked me up to the monitors, and they would come in and check 20 minutes before and after the pill, and nothing was happening. So that was Monday night all the way through to Tuesday. According to the monitor she was hooked up to, Lauren was having contractions, but she couldn't feel them. And they did check to see if I was dilating at all, and I wasn't. 
By then, Lauren had been in the hospital for 24 hours. And I just tried to sleep and rest. The nurses started the Cervidil, which is that implant that goes in. And so that was supposed to be in for 24 hours. I started to feel my contractions, not bad ones, but I started to feel uncomfortable and cramping. By this time, it was, I believe, Wednesday early morning or Tuesday late night. So they checked again, no progressive, like I wasn't progressing at all, not dilated at all, even after both of these medical treatments. And so then they put me on a Pitocin drip. So then I was on a Pitocin drip for another 24 hours. So now it's into Wednesday night. I was talking to my cousin who's a labor and delivery nurse, and she's the closest thing to a sister I've ever had. And so she was FaceTiming me and talking me through it. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore because every medical intervention, I thought, you know, this is going to be the golden ticket. (laughs) Like this is going to make it happen. And it just wasn't because she prepped me because I was like, you know, what are the odds that you get induced and then you have a baby in the same day? She goes, not very likely. I'm going to say probably four or five days. And I was like, what? So I was prepared for being there for a while. Lauren was going stir crazy. She couldn't walk around because she was hooked up to a fetal monitor. There was no internet. There were only three channels on the TV. Doctors suggested they start all over again, first with the cervical ripening pill, and then the cervidal, and then the Pitocin drip. And I just lost it. I was like, there's no way I can go through this again without any progression. And any time they checked to see if I was dilated, it was so painful that when they would come in and say, okay, we're going to check your progress, I would just start crying. It was just the most painful thing that I'd ever felt. (laughs) Then doctors had another suggestion. They said, you know, we can try the Foley balloon. That's an inflatable balloon that doctors place in the cervix to begin to open it up. But they usually place the balloon in a cervix that has already opened at least a little. And Lauren's cervix still wasn't dilated at all. It was, as obstetricians put it, long and closed. And so they said, we've got a midwife here that we call ninja fingers. (laughs) Because if anybody can get a Foley balloon into you, it will be her. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, well, whatever, whatever. I was just going along with whatever they said. because I was just like, you guys know better than I do. I know you have my interests and my baby's interests in your heart, you know, so I'll do whatever. So she tries to get a Foley balloon in my undilated cervix, and it failed miserably. And it was horrible. It felt... I'm wincing just thinking of it. It was horrendous. So she, she was like, there's no way I can do this. So doctors told Lauren they would give her a break and let her sleep. Thursday morning, I woke up and immediately started crying. And I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. And they came in, and my regular gynecologist came in, and I was like, "I, you guys, I can't do this anymore. I don't, I can't. They checked again, and I wasn't dilated at all. And I was, I was like, is there any way that 
you know, a C-section is an option because I can't keep doing this. But doctors told her they still wanted her to try and have her baby vaginally. Cesarean surgery at this point would be elective surgery, they said, not medically necessary. But they also told her, yes, they could do it. And Lauren couldn't imagine going through more failed attempts at induction. I said to my husband, I said, you know, if those windows opened, I'd be out the window right now. I cannot do this for another day. I cannot. I didn't have in my brain that I wanted to have a vaginal birth. So to me, having a C-section was to get me sane again. You were describing this so well. Was your blood pressure still okay for those the, the, the three, four days you were in the hospital? Mm-hmm. So it was fine. So did anyone at any point suggest that you just go home? And no. no. Okay. So everyone agreed to cesarean surgery. So I was like, yes, I, let's do it. As soon as that decision was made, it was like a load had been lifted off my shoulders. The sun was shining again, and I was like, there was an end in sight. There was an end game. Because up until that point, it was, maybe this is going to work. No. Maybe this is going to work. No. And those, maybe this is going to work, were lasting 24 hours. You're just at this heightened awareness for, you know, four straight days where there's no real break. After doctors agreed to do the cesarean, Lauren was in the surgical suite two hours later. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) This is wonderful. This is the best decision I ever made. When they brought me in to do the C-section and they gave me the epidural, I immediately was just, I just felt so much better. I was like, can I nap? And they were like, yeah, you can nap. So I had the anesthesiologist on my head and I was like, I'm just going to close my eyes for a minute. (laughs) And so all of it was just a big haze after that. And it was, it was wonderful. It sounds like they gave you a sedative as well as the epidural. Oh, for sure. And then when they delivered her, they were worried about her oxygen level. So Lauren's baby Ellie was taken across the hall for monitoring. Lauren's husband went with Ellie and Lauren was able to sleep. I slept for a little bit, and they brought her in in four hours, and that's when I had my moment with her, my connecting moment where I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're here. And that's when it was really, you know, happy and, you know, wonderful. But later, when I reflected upon it and how emotionally afraid I was, and when I was talking to the therapists and the psychiatrists about it, they told me about like a birth trauma or labor trauma, how you're traumatized by the labor, but yet you can't process it because then you have a baby to take care of because now you can't worry about yourself anymore and you're not biologically supposed to, you're worried about this baby. And so it starts seeping in later. Birth is supposed to be a joyous occasion, and so it's hard for new mothers to admit when they're struggling. And for Lauren, it was difficult to recognize that her birth had been traumatic because she never had had an ideal birth in mind. She knew well ahead of time that her labor would be induced, and she didn't think much about the trajectory of the birth beyond that. 
I didn't have to do a natural vaginal birth with lavender oils and a certain song playlist. Like I, I just went <laughs> and I thought, you know, well, I just trust the medical professionals and I trust in my husband to make decisions if I can't. And I'm, I'm okay with whatever happens. It was that isolating anxiety of not progressing and yet putting my body and my mind through constant activity. It was very frenetic. And also you described it so well because you described them trying treatment after treatment. Nothing was working. And, you know, you're, when your body isn't ready for labor, too, the things they try to do to you are actually quite can be quite painful as well. But what you're describing is, you know, they're they're fiddling with your body in ways that it's not really meant to be fiddled with. So that can that's really uncomfortable. We ended up having her on Thursday at 109 p.m. and then we went home on Sunday. So it was almost an entire week that I had been in the hospital. I was like, I need to go home. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you know, technically you could stay, you know, and I said, no, I, I want to go home. Lauren very wisely sought out professional help so that she could discuss and process the traumatic birth and the way it affected her. She's now thoroughly enjoying motherhood and her wonderful daughter. She is so funny now. Like her little looks and everything that she does. I'm like, I laugh out loud every day. It's just been such a joy. And now we'll hear from Stacy. Just as I did with Lauren, while Stacy was still pregnant, I asked her what she hoped her birth would be like. I'm trying not to get myself set in a certain way because I know things can go differently. So I am having birth in a hospital. I'm, you know, working with my doctor that I've been with. Um, and I've kind of talked to him a little bit. You know, I would like to have like a more natural vaginal birth without like medications. I'm hoping not to get induced. I would like to try without like an epidural, those types of things. Um, it's hard because anybody I talk to is like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just get the epidural? So it's hard because I don't know many people that haven't done a natural birth that way. I talked with my doctor a little bit about it and, you know, it's funny because, like, he's supportive, but he's also, like, I don't know, a medical doctor. So he's like, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't get an epidural. You know, don't you want to, like, be able to, like, watch your pregnancy? You'll be so in so much pain. He's like, but I'll support you whatever you want to do. So my vision is going in with an open mind in case anything happens. I'm not a, totally against an epidural if I really end up needing one. Um, but I would like to try without and do naturally, if that makes sense. Stacy's describing a generational phenomenon that I've written about. When I was of childbearing age, there were articles in newspapers and women's magazines about the benefits to both mother and baby of what was termed natural childbirth, meaning childbirth without medication and other medical interventions. It's not a coincidence that Stacy's mother and mother-in-law had natural births. I did, too. But by the 1990s, epidural anesthesia, labor induction, and a high cesarean section rate were the norm. We like to think of medicine as a dispassionate science, but it's shaped constantly by the culture it lives in. 
In the 1970s, as the women's movement gained traction, natural birth was seen as a means of demonstrating women's strength and power. As the majority of American women began to work full-time outside the home, in response to the success of the women's movement, epidurals were viewed as a way to relax and socialize normally while you labor. Women did not need to prove their power through birth anymore. They did that every day in the workplace, in the halls of Congress, and on the athletic field. Plus, with the vast increase in labor inductions, as busy women and physicians wanted to schedule births, an epidural became a virtual necessity. Induced labor isn't normal labor. It's more painful than spontaneous labor. And so epidurals become even more necessary. And as more women got epidurals, more women asked for them. And now Stacy describes what actually happened during the birth of her daughter, McKendry. It was a Thursday. I was supposed to have one more week of work, and I went to the doctor, and my blood pressure was high. And so he had me stay and, like, lay on my side, and it went down. So he was like, I don't want you working anymore. Wrote me a note, and then... That night, well, the next morning at 3 a.m., I woke up and my water broke. So I called the doctor, and he's like, you know, hang out at home for a while. It's the middle of the night and see what happens. And so I kind of just tossed and turned, but nothing happened. So, like, I wasn't having contractions or anything. Stacy's obstetrician called to check on her at 7.30. He was kind of like, well, you know, when your water breaks, you're on a time limit, so you have to come in and start the induction process. This was exactly what Stacy wanted to avoid, labor induction. But doctors worry about infection if the baby is born more than 24 hours after the water breaks, so if a mom doesn't go into labor spontaneously after membranes rupture, doctors usually induce labor. Of course, <laughs> Andy didn't have his hospital bag or anything packed yet. He's like, we have a whole nother week. So <laughs> he packed his bag, so he had some stuff. He jumped in the shower, and then we stopped at Starbucks, and then we headed to the hospital. Stacy called her mother and mother-in-law, and they headed to the hospital, too. And doctors started Stacy on Cervidil, a suppository that's inserted into the vagina to help ripen the cervix one of the same treatments that Lauren had. So they started that first. I had to stay in bed for like an hour before I could get up. And so for me, I guess I was kind of like, again, the whole thing of like, I want to be walking around or on a yoga ball kind of was just like, yeah, that's not happening. So I kind of just tried to let it all go. Like, this wasn't my plan, but we'll make it work. The irony of them saying we have to induce you Walking around and doing things like you just described, being on a yoga ball, actually helps labor get going. Exactly. (laughs) I remember I started to have some contractions, but it wasn't, you know, anything painful yet. It was just like, oh, yeah, like, this is starting. And after I laid in bed for an hour, they did let me get up. They did bring me a yoga ball, and I could walk around. And then they did another round because I wasn't, I don't know, softening enough or anything. Then they started Pitocin, which really is what, you know, kicks the contractions, makes the contractions go. They put the Pitocin on the IV pole with wheels so I could walk around. And then they started kicking up the Pitocin, which is when everything, like, kind of started to get crazy. 
I was finally like, you know, I was having like contractions like crazy, but like back to back, like I was starting to get to the point where there was like no break between them. It'd be like 10 seconds and I'd have like another one. And this is what natural childbirth advocates mean when they say induced labor is not normal labor. Spontaneous labor builds slowly in intensity, and for most of it, you have a couple minutes rest between contractions. But induced labor is sudden, intense, and with little to no time for a reprieve between contractions. And I just remember my mom was there, and then my husband Andy was there, and they were both like rubbing my feet or like, you know, putting cold rags on me. Then my mother in law came. And I was totally fine with them being in the room until, like, it was time. So she came. Once I was about 19 hours in, I decided to get an epidural. Once I hit that mark, I was kind of at the point where I was just, I don't even know. I was exhausted, you know, and I just finally gave in. It was crazy, just, like, no break which was my thing. Like, I was like, I can't even get 30 seconds of a break. I just remember kind of looking at Andy and I was like, if I knew the baby was coming in the next like hour or two, I could do it, you know, but you have no idea. And I was like, I just need a break. I just need to like relax. So I decided to do it and I do not regret it because it at least gave me an hour of like, being able to, like, relax a little bit. Stacy started pushing at about 4 a.m., almost exactly 24 hours from the time her water broke. I remember we started pushing at, like, 4. So I pushed for two hours. Um, and I just remember during that I was, like, kept looking at my poor nurse, and I was like, when is this baby coming? Is this baby going to be out soon? And she was like, I I think in the next 10 minutes, like, you know, just trying to get me through it. (laughs) We can laugh about it now, but so Andy is a type 1 diabetic. It's been a long night, and he's holding my leg for the past two hours, and all of a sudden he's just like, I think I'm going to pass out. And everybody just looks at him while I'm, like, pushing. And he his blood sugar dropped because he hadn't eaten. Mm. So he had to go lay on the couch. And their nurses are bringing him, like, juice and stuff. And I'm like, you better not miss this. <laughs> like, I'm so close. And so um, it was – now I laugh about it. Then I was, like, worried about him as I'm trying to, like, you know, have a baby. But so it was nice to have my mom in there, like – as backup when that happened. And um, I think just the adrenaline he didn't even, you know, realize that his sugar was going low. You know, he was so great through it all, like rubbing my feet and getting me like a cold rag. So I think he just didn't even realize it until it was like, wow, I need something like now. I think both of us didn't realize how long it had been, you know, but he made it back to me, like, right as she was, you know, coming out. So that was perfect. Um, we didn't know if it was a boy or girl. So it was kind of crazy because, you know, he was supposed to cut the cord and everything. And all of a sudden, you know, I hear the doctor talking to the nurse. And I'm like, am I supposed to be pushing You know, like, I don't, like, do I keep pushing? Do I not? And he's kind of like, if you can, yes, keep pushing. Stacy and Andy had had a baby girl, but then came a frightening moment. The cord had been wrapped around the baby's neck. 
all of a sudden I just see the baby like going past us and I was kind of like I thought he was supposed to, like I had no idea what was going on and I in my head at first I'm like is it a boy or a girl you know and then they're like it's a girl and so then I start crying because I'm so excited it's a girl and then I just kind of see my mom's face and she kind of just like stunned like worried so I'm like what's going on is she okay so the cord was wrapped around her neck twice so she wasn't breathing so the doctor you know hurry up cut the cord and then they like called in the whole like NICU unit so it was just like a whirlwind it was crazy because you know she wasn't breathing so then it took about I think three minutes from what they said to get her to start breathing so they got her breathing and then everything after that was great and so then we got to hold her and see her but it was kind of scary you know it was kind of crazy and my doctor's like I would tell you if you know something was wrong and I'm kind of just like no you, you probably wouldn't <laughs> She was fine. Then, you know, like the normal stuff, like just like cleaning up. And then we got to eat, which was great because it had been a long time. She was a big baby. I was very surprised, but it made sense to me because I was so big. Like I carried her so big, but she was healthy. She was great. Stacy was lucky. She's a teacher and her daughter was born in April. So she had five months off before she had to go back to work. Most American women go back to work within two months or less of having a baby. That's one of the reasons for the change in birth practices that I described earlier, with mothers of young children having such stressful, busy lives. Planned induction and epidural anesthesia have both become appealing, while natural childbirth has become much less appealing. Like anything else, medicine has cultural trends. Like Lauren, Stacy is delighted with her daughter. We are super happy and you know, she's brought so much joy to our lives, and she's taught us so much already. And now we'll hear from Cora. When she was pregnant, I asked her, too, to describe the birth that she ideally wanted to experience. And a reminder, especially to those listeners who might not have heard the first pregnancy episode. Cora's my daughter, and she didn't want to give birth in a hospital. She received her prenatal care from midwives who worked out of a birthing center. And that's where she was planning to give birth. I guess I'm maybe a little unusual just in that I I want people there. I mean, I invited you as my mom. I invited my best friend. Um, so to me, it feels like something that I want to do with other people that I'm really close to. I feel like that would make it emotionally easier for me and also give me some motivation to just sort of work through the pain rather, rather than just collapse under the weight of it. Um, but... You know, the birthing center has talked to us a lot about when to come in. So the the idea is that, you know, you call them when your water breaks or when you start to have contractions, but um, you would do most of your laboring at home. Cora explained that while mothers labor at home, midwives stay in close touch with them. They want to hear you on the phone just to kind of evaluate if you're still cheery, if you're still upright in your sort of most primary social manner that you're not ready to come in yet. And I, I kind of imagine actually just like having headphones and like because I've I've heard, especially during transition and pushing that you're just in your most kind of inward turned state. I've gone on a lot of just walks through my neighborhood playing this playlist and just imagining it. 
visualizing it for myself and getting energized. And so I'm hoping I can recreate that, but as a way of just sort of tuning out the environment and doing what I need to do, but also having these like really wonderful familiar faces kind of like, like cheering me on without sound, you know, to the soundtrack in my head. So that's my vision. I, I've run a marathon. I've run a couple half marathons, but the marathon especially was something that just I trained for for a long time. It was like kind of this one-time feat that I was really proud of and was obviously really difficult. And they talked about how, you know, you're in a lot of pain when you cross the finish line of a marathon and you would never consider getting an injection of morphine to get rid of that pain. And actually, I mean, for my marathon, I had a lot of family members there along the line. And it was really helpful, like that encouragement of like, you're doing something amazing, you're doing great, you're this much closer. And I guess, I mean, that's, it's sort of the same kind of thing that I imagine with birth. And that's, I think, why I want people there is just that like, yeah, I'm doing this great thing. I need encouragement. You know, I want to be treated as somebody that's like doing this like very exalted thing. So that was Cora's vision of birth when she was pregnant. Now let's find out what actually happened. I grew up with the story of my birth being kind of a parable of my childhood. I knew all the details of it before I can even remember. It had been told to me as just something that's a really wondrous experience. And obviously with your expertise, um, I had a negative idea of the medicalization of birth. And I really wanted an experience all the way through my pregnancy that would mirror um, how birth had been talked about as I grew up, um, just as something that um, is a really wonderful experience, not focusing on the pain, but more on um, kind of the miracle of it, assuming that everything will go well. As you learned from our first pregnancy podcast last month, Cora didn't have a positive experience when she saw her gynecologist to have her IUD removed. Going to the gynecologist, I felt like I was already bombarded with these ideas of what could go wrong. So she decided to look into a birthing center staffed by midwives. So I wanted something sort of in the middle where there was hospital backup if need be, but not um, not a hospital birth. I was trying so hard not to impose my vision of birth on you, even though clearly, as you've just described, I had I certainly had spent years making an impression on you about birth. But at the same time, I was trying very hard not in any way to be directive. So I just remember Googling midwives and birth centers in Austin, finding a couple online that looked interesting. And I remember sending you links. Yeah, that, that's how we found the birthing center. I had a really wonderful experience there. It's a really an incredible community. I mean, it really feels more like a community than a healthcare service. Describe a little bit about your centering group. Explain how that worked. Yeah, so I had never heard of centering and I thought that it was unique to the birthing center, but it, it's actually a practice that's done um, not as commonly in the U.S., obviously, but it is sort of a centering is, is a term for that concept of kind of gathering women together through their pregnancy for mutual support. Instead, of having my own prenatal visits, I would have them as a group. And it was a group of women that were all due in June. So part of that, you know, two hours every time, I think there were 10 total. Um, part of it would be me getting checked out individually. And those were very minimal tests. And then the rest of the session was basically lessons about pregnancy, about newborn care, about postpartum depression, um, about birth. And so just different ways of preparing you mentally, physically, psychologically for um, birth, breastfeeding, and having a baby. And 
And that would be done with the same women every time. And so you kind of grow a cohort. And then the idea is that you then have a group after you have your baby um, for support, you know, to hang out with, uh, to ask for advice and things like that. Being a historian of medicine, writing about birth and learning that in the 19th century, they had what historians call social birth, that birth was all about community. And it just sounds like that's being re-recognized, that women really need support throughout their pregnancy, uh, during birth, and, and especially after the birth, too. So you're, you're describing bringing community back together again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it definitely feels like the way it should be done. So why don't we just talk about the birth? Let's just okay. fast forward to the birth. Let's see. I, I feel like at 37 weeks was sort of when my mental, um, my mental status kind of flipped over into this could be any day now. Um, and I, I got measured. So that was when I started having weekly appointments. So it, everything just sort of feels like it's speeding up. I was looking towards, um, my last day of work. I worked through about 38 and a half weeks. Um, and my, all of my, my mental focus was really like kind of future focused. And I felt like I was living in this limbo of like, it could be any day now, kind of suspended between two lives, essentially. I was very much in that space of, of waiting. I remember at one point I, I like stumbled on a cockroach at my house and I screamed and my husband like runs into the room and says, are you, did your water break? So everybody was living in that mental space at that point. And also, I mean, I do remember pregnancy being really smooth up until about 36 weeks. And I remember a pretty sharp turn into just like extreme discomfort. I mean, it's not pain, but it's just like there's this physical feeling of like there is only so long I can live this way and feel this way. Um, just hauling my body around, peeing, pooping every five minutes. I flew out to be at the birth and to hang around to help out afterward. You came at 39 weeks. And at that point, we were just sort of living day to day, walking a lot, you know, still feeling like it's got to be at some point now. You had a two week visit and you would have stayed longer. But, you know, I didn't want you to be living in Austin indefinitely. I woke up a day after my due date at about 3.30 in the morning with what felt like mild contractions. And it was it was sort of every 15 minutes, but it was the first time that it was a discreet feeling of like tightening, cramping, and then it would stop and then it would come back. And, um, I just kind of slept in between those, um, until about six or seven. And I think you woke up with me at that point. We let my husband sleep and I was like excited, but sort of trying to stay cool. At that point, Cora and I started timing the contractions. Had I had any idea that labor, early labor can last that long, I would have foregone that measurement in the early period. And we were, you know, trying to distract, trying to kind of walk around. It was June in Austin, Texas, so not super amenable to walking. And I was also just like peeing so often at that point that it's hard to walk anyway. The thing about birth is no one experiences it often, even people who have hung out with friends who've been in labor. And we kind of forget how long it can last, which as it turned out in your case, quite a long time. So you even at some point called um, your mother-in-law who wasn't in town yet and told her she should probably head to Austin, right? I called her at about 6.30 in the morning after I'd been feeling contractions for three hours or so. And she ended up coming almost 
she got there almost 24 hours before he was born. So that gives you some idea of just like how time stretched out for that day and a half. I'm very convinced now that I've gone through it of what a mental game labor and birth is. You know, you can kind of stall your own labor just in terms of the emotional and mental state that you're in. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing to say because um, a lot of people have also talked about hospital birth in that way. You're in a strange environment, and if anything can stall labor or make it last longer, it's being in a hospital environment. That, that, you know, with people bustling around and all this weird medical equipment. So there are all kinds of ways that, that labor can be slowed or stalled. Right. It sort of felt like I was I was so excited for it to start and then I was fixating on it to escalate and it really didn't. And it's almost like my excitement kind of peaked early. And then by the time, you know, I, I was sort of like sick of it and nothing was happening. My mother-in-law came around 6.30 p.m. So this is, you know, 15 hours after my labor started. The birthing center had told us to not come in until you're in active labor that contractions are significantly more painful than they are in early labor. So they they always say, like, you're not going to be, like, kind of your polite, typical social self. Um, You're kind of more turned inwards. And I sense that I probably wasn't quite there, like, kind of trying to convince myself, well, maybe I'm just really great at tolerating pain. Maybe this is, like, the sensation that everyone's talking about that's unbearable and I'm just handling it well. But at that point, I was just desperate for some verification that something was happening, that I was more dilated. So um, they had me come in. That was about 7.30 p.m. And they measured me, and I was at three centimeters, which was extremely discouraging, as you can imagine. She encouraged me at that point, you know, why don't you go home? You could take a Benadryl, take a nap, and, you know, you'll probably wake up farther along. You just sort of need a mental break from this and a physical break as well. And I just really didn't want to go home. I felt like I had done home all day. I didn't want the discouragement of having to drive back home. So I kind of begged her to stay. And she said, well, okay, if you're going to stay, why don't we give you this short-acting narcotic? It was, a sh- it was an injection. It'll allow you to sleep for about two hours and you'll wake up probably farther along. It should wear off pretty quickly after that. I took the shot. I slept for about two hours and I woke up. It was like 10 PM. I was also very nauseous and shaky. And that had started before I went in. I think it got worse probably with that shot. And also just as I was dilating more, my labor had pretty much like stalled or stopped. And I was just like extremely tired. I think the the narcotic most of all gave you that like Benadryl kind of raggedy and feeling that you could just like close your eyes and like slump down at any minute. Then another woman came into the birthing center well along in labor, much farther than Cora. And the midwife who had been with Cora left the room to attend to that birth. I hadn't really slept for any stretch of time in 24 hours. And I also hadn't really been able to eat that much um, just because of like the nausea and the shaking. My mother-in-law explained to me that when you're in labor, kind of all the blood flow is going to your uterus. And so you feel nauseous when you do eat. We should add that your mother-in-law is a family doctor who delivered babies for 25 years. Exactly. Yes. At that point, I guess it was probably around three in the morning. The midwife came back. She checked me again. And... I told her that my labor had stalled. And I remember crying and saying, you know, am I going to have to have a C-section? Because I, um, my water hadn't broken at that point. So I didn't really realize, like, I wasn't on any kind of clock. But I just, I knew that, you know, sometimes you could have a C-section for failure to progress or for getting too exhausted. And um, so I was really worried about that outcome. I really had not wanted to get sent home. 
the evening that I came there, but at this point it's 4.30 in the morning and I was like ready to go home. So I told the midwife, like, we're going to go home. I'm going to sleep and I'll come back kind of when I'm farther along. You know, she talked to me about like the, the way that you can kind of saw your labor emotionally and how I just kind of needed to get in a different headspace. We went home. Um, I slept for about two hours and I woke up to a contraction and I knew immediately like this is what active labor feels like. I mean, it was like just qualitatively different. It took all of my focus. I also told my husband at that point, like, please don't tell me how far apart they are. Don't count them. I don't want to think about it this time. I just want to like live it and not try to get in my head about it. She contacted the birthing center. We ended up going back in pretty quickly around 830 in the morning. And we got back. There was a new midwife on call, which also was just sort of a helpful reset different energy. For about four hours, like I was in active labor. Things were definitely getting more intense. Cora's husband, Chris, was her mainstay throughout the labor. The sound of my husband's voice, the feel of his hands like pressing against my back was pretty much all I could take in. And it was sort of helpful to just focus in on like one person who was really near you. But he did amazing. And he was like a really excellent birth coach. Um, I was just so desperate for this baby to be out. And that's, I feel like at that point it was such a mental game. I mean, in addition to obviously the physical endurance, but just kind of the concept of like the hardest is yet to come. I'm so tired. I am in a lot of pain and I just, um, it, I was so in the present at that point. Like I couldn't even really get like, I couldn't feel motivated by the idea of meeting my baby at the end of this. I just wanted it to end. I just felt like absolutely exhausted. And so anything that would make you go faster seemed appealing, regardless of like the pain threshold. So Cora agreed to have the midwife break her water. And it definitely got a lot more intense. Um, That was, I think, the point at which I remember thinking to myself, like, I want to get an epidural next time. I don't want to feel this again. So at this point, you know, I think she was coming in and checking me still every 45 minutes or so. Um, at one point during this two hours, she comes and she, I'm at nine centimeters. And I just remember, like, I mean, just like begging her, like, I need to be at 10. Like, I can't do this anymore. You know, eventually, I guess I got to 10 centimeters. So it was like 2.30 p.m. at this point. So 35 hours after the beginning of this. The pushing. So... I mean, it's true that it definitely was much less painful than transition. It definitely was a different kind of pain and much more manageable than, you know, the last centimeter or two of dilation was. I pushed for an hour. um, And, you know, as you explained to me from like the vantage point of like watching the baby come out, it really is that, you know, you see maybe like a, a dime size portion of the head and then they kind of rock back. And then they rock forward and maybe you see a penny sized portion of the head. And so it's just like this very slow progress of like watching the head kind of gradually emerge. Another thing I thought about as I was pushing is that this is the part that they always show on TV um, where women are like screaming as they push out the baby. And you always think of that as pain, like they're screaming and like the baby's coming out. I would hold my breath and push as hard as I can. And then I would almost like scream with the exertion of releasing the breath that I had been holding And I remember thinking like, oh, that, that screaming when you're pushing is not pain. It really is exertion. You know, the part before when I had been kind of like walking around and moving around on the bed and screaming, that was pain. But they never show that on TV. 
Cora also described a difference in the way midwives deliver babies as opposed to obstetricians. The midwife, she was applying like warm compresses and olive oil to my perineum at that point because it reduces the risk of tearing and it kind of like softens the skin, you know, and she was reassuring me like, you know, we're doing all these things to prevent tearing, don't worry, like, and I think at that point it it was, you know, she was telling me like next contraction and he'll be out, like, <laughs> which just, you know, you can't imagine at the end, like to be told that the finish line is right there was just like such a like triumph and relief. So his head came out and I could actually see it. And my first sight of my son, I mean, he had the cord wrapped around his neck, which I didn't realize at the time, but he was blue, not the skin color that you're supposed to have. I said, what's wrong with him? But it was one of those, like, it was not like the maternal panic of like finding your son in the crib being blue. It was, it was just sort of this, like what he doesn't, he shouldn't look like that. But it I was too tired to really apply the emotional context to it that I would have otherwise. Because I wasn't the least bit alarmed. I, I've been to enough births to know that that newborns have an incredibly high tolerance for hypoxia. You know, I wasn't the least bit alarmed, but I heard your alarm. I said at that point, totally normal. It's totally normal. You know, I don't know if you heard me say that. Yeah, I don't remember taking that in at least. I mean, I remember it it was sort of like a frozen moment. Like, I think the whole thing lasted like five seconds between when I saw him looking that way and when, you know, and and she said, keep pushing, keep pushing, because like at that point it was only his head out. They needed to get his whole body out so they could stimulate him. And so I kept pushing, even though I was like, you know, kind of horrified. And, And then she said, you know, we need to stimulate him. And she sounded like kind of like urgent and focused, but not alarmed. And they like kind of, you know, put this bulb of air into his lungs and then he started crying and then it's over. And as soon as it's over, it really is this like full turning the page. I wasn't tired anymore. I wasn't hungry. I just kind of felt like this new wave of energy. And I was just like, fine um, and happy. And, you know, like I got to tell you his name and I, you know, I got to call my friends and I got to meet him. It just felt like, you know, everything was like already fading, the exhaustion and the pain and all of that. And even just the memory of feeling that way, it, it receded really quickly. Being a mother watching your child, and, and I'm not even talking about the birth. I'm talking about transitioning from not being a mother to being a mother. And, you know, I had no idea how much help you would need. You needed no help. You know, I mean, you just took to it. You you maybe needed 10 seconds of diaper. Like, oh, yeah, this side of the diaper. You put this side of the diaper underneath him. Like, that was it. And you were attentive. You were into it. Like, as focused as women are during labor, that's how focused then you became as a mother. It was an incredibly cool thing to watch. You became a mom. So you kind of started this story by saying you would recommend, like the birth center was a great experience, you would recommend it to anyone. I know that you want at least one more child. Would you do it again the way you did it, or would you spend time rethinking how you might want to do it? No, I absolutely would do it again the same way. I knew like within an hour after the birth that like, yes, I would do this again, you know, even though two hours before I had been swearing that I wouldn't. I mean, also, I loved the care there so much. I do think 
at a hospital, you know, while I could have been numbed, I also think I would have been a lot more anxious and scared and kind of like feeling less in control of things, which would have been sort of a trade-off in that way. Also, I mean, the birthing center, he was born at 3.30 p.m. We got to go home at 9.30 p.m. that day. And for a hospital, you know, I know at least you have to stay for 24 hours. The baby is kind of poked and prodded during that time. And so are you. And so it just felt so great to be able to go home that night um, to start your life and not have to stay in this artificial setting. So, I mean, yes, I would... I would absolutely do it again. I mean, you know, nine months of excellent care, all this postpartum care for maybe, you know, two hours of intense pain that I would have been able to to numb out otherwise. Um, I think it's definitely a good trade-off. We had no idea what kind of births they would have when we asked Lauren, Stacy, and Cora if they would be willing to share with us. First, a description of their pregnancies, and then later, the stories of their births. But as it turned out, the stories of these three births pretty accurately represent the range of birth experiences in the U.S. today. One of the three births, the birth of Lauren's daughter, Ellie, was by cesarean after failed induction. And indeed, close to one in three births in the U.S. today is by cesarean. Another birth, the birth of Stacy's daughter, Mickey, was induced and an epidural was administered. And those are the typical interventions at hospital births. Almost every mother gets an epidural and the majority of labors today are induced. The third birth, the birth of Cora's son Asher, was a natural birth that took place at a birthing center without medical intervention. And although it was the least typical contemporary American birth of the three, there is a distinct minority of American women who are opting once again for natural births that take place either at a birthing center or at home. Cora's birth was the kind of birth that women active in the women's health reform movement fought for in the 1970s. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the host of Lifespan. Thank you for listening to this episode. Adam Rich is our audio engineer, Olivia Stefanoff is our audio editor, and Adam and I are Lifespan's executive producers. Join us next month when our two guests talk about their experience of chronic gastrointestinal disease.